I want to welcome all of you who are watching on video or the podcast, who are in the community center or watching on your computer. It is great to have you with us. Thanks for being here. We are doing a sermon series called Core Questions that you all have submitted, various questions that you all have submitted. I've got hundreds of them from you, and they all show one thing, that we are a very diverse congregation. 4,000 members and attenders and 8,000 opinions and more about penguins than you ever want to know. And today I want to talk about one of the most frequent questions that I got. And that is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And I was surprised by how many of you asked this question. You all have like a little hell fetish going on or something. And, and I was kind of bummed out that so many of you asked it because it means that I've got to preach on it. So if you don't want to hear this sermon, just, you know, I don't want to preach it. So we're kind of all in the same boat. We preachers do not like to talk about the subject of hell because we want to keep you all coming to church, and hell doesn't sell. <laughs> so we tend to downplay it. A little bit like an elderly woman I knew when I lived in Atlanta who referred to the Civil War as the recent unpleasantness between the states. <laughs> you kind of downplay it, right? On top of that, the doctrine of hell has been misused by preachers in the past to get people to be Christians or be good or whatever it is. In my former church, the uh, junior high director took his kids to a camp once, and the speaker one night at the campfire went off his notes, digressed, and said, just out of the blue, just said, you know, this fire is hot, but it's not as hot as hell, which is where your friends are going because you haven't converted them yet. I mean, this is why preachers should never digress from their notes, right? <laughs> Kids were crying, damage control needed to be done, right? So it's for all of those reasons that we preachers tend to avoid talking about the subject of hell. Problem with that, though, is that the same Bible that talks about heaven also talks about hell. The Bible that affirms that God is love also affirms that God is just. But more than that, I don't think we can really understand the strength of God's love until we understand what hell is really all about. Hell is not the opposite of God's love. It is an expression of it. And I'm going to try to prove that statement to you in a minute. And I want to start by giving some theological answers to this question. And then I want to talk about how does this doctrine of hell apply to us in our everyday lives, where we are worried about our jobs or our finances or the economy or, or, or our relationships or you name it. So I'll start with the theology and then sort of how, what does this mean for us here today? Because you know what? Hell isn't just after death, is it? We can experience hell on earth, and Jesus came to rescue us from that. So let me start by talking about three good things about hell. Okay, I kind of want to do ten, like David Letterman's top ten, but I'll just stick with three best things about hell, all right? The first is, best thing about hell is that, about a God of judgment in hell is that it shows that God loves us enough to give us freedom. Hear me on this. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves because we prefer to live without him. And biblically speaking, that's what hell is, a place for people who want nothing to do with God. You see, our ideas about what hell is, they're all, they're all messed up. You know, pitchforks and torture chambers, that, 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 that's medieval art. That has more to do with Dante than it does with the Bible. And we kind of continue that perception in how we talk about hell in our everyday lives. You know, we talk, we'll say things like, man, that flight was hell. Or I've got a boss from hell. Woody Allen says that hell would be having to sit through the ice capades again. Right? He, may, he may be right on that. I don't know. 
A while back, someone sent me one of those email things that listed a bunch of mistakes in church bulletins, and one of them said, at the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> not you guys. You guys, not you guys. At different church. Other churches have that problem. We're not clear on what hell is. And the truth is the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on it either. It uses a lot of different images, outer darkness, lake of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it all sort of seems symbolic language. Some of them even contradict each other, like outer darkness and a lake of fire. But the Bible is very clear about one thing. Hell is a place where God is not. Where God's love is nowhere to be found. The text we read today says that hell is a place where folks are shut out from the presence of the Lord. Which means that hell isn't just what happens you know, after we die. Hell is what happens here on earth when we live apart from God. When we aren't paying any attention to him. When we choose to live for ourselves and wreck relationships because of it. When we prefer our sin, our desires, our success, our agenda to God's. We create hell right here on earth. And because God loves us, he gives us the freedom to choose not to follow him. Because otherwise we would just be robots and that wouldn't be love. So God gave us the freedom to choose life without him. And the doctrine of hell simply says we retain that freedom into eternity. Sin is when we say to God, I want nothing to do with you. And hell is when God finally says, have it your way. Hell is the greatest compliment God ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. How can a loving God tolerate hell? He has to because real love insists that we have freedom to love him or not. Second good thing about hell is it says that God is going to put a stop to evil one day. You know, he's going to create a perfect world. A world where people don't steal from you or wreck, wreck, wreck your reputation by gossiping about you or hurt you or harm you. And he is not going to settle for a world that is 51% set right. He is not going to settle for a world that is only 49% evil. He wants a perfect world without any pain or without any sorrow. And anyone, anyone who wants to be a part of that world can be. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I am a messed up sinner and I need you to forgive me. And I need your power to become like you starting in this life and then finishing the job after I die. Anyone can be part of that perfect world. But for folks who for whatever reasons can't admit they're messed up, don't want God's help, well, he's not going to let them into his perfect heaven because they would just mess it up. You know, we've turned God into this kind of wimpy, nice guy in the sky, but do you really want a nice God? A God who lets everyone into heaven, even an unrepentant Adolf Hitler, right? who would say something like, oh, it must have been his childhood that made him a little bit grumpy, you know, let him in, right? That's not a God of love. A loving God says, no, the slaughter of millions of people needs to be accounted for. Otherwise, there's no justice. Or more personally, how do you feel when someone wrongs you, gossips about you, hurts you in some way? If they showed up in heaven still not willing to admit that what they did was wrong, still not willing to admit that they need Jesus' help to become more like him, well, then suddenly heaven isn't heaven anymore, is it? If heaven is a place where we can go on being as rotten as we want to be, well, then heaven is going to be as awful as earth is. The doctrine of hell says that one day God will put a stop to evil. He will not tolerate it or the harm it does. He will quarantine it so that heaven can remain perfect. It's interesting to me that two of the main arguments against the existence of God contradict each other. How can a loving God allow so much evil in the world? And how can a loving God judge evil people? They kind of cancel each other out, don't they? 
Yes, God is loving, but he's also strong, and he loves us so much that one day he will quarantine evil so that it can't go on doing harm forever, and that place is called hell. Hell shows God respects us enough to give us freedom. Hell shows that God will not tolerate the damage that evil does forever. But the best thing about hell, the best thing about hell is you don't have to go there. You don't. That's the whole point, right? God doesn't want to judge people. That doesn't give him a thrill. It's not fun for him. He hates it. He hates it so much so that in the person of Jesus on the cross, God bore the penalty for our sins, took our punishment so that justice is served. God doesn't just wink at sin. No, no. It gets punished, but in a way that if we accept Jesus and his sacrifice, we escape the judgment. You don't have to go there. Over and over again, the Bible affirms that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Not one person. The passage we read today says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. John 3, 16, the heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. God wants everyone to go to heaven. And I know that raises questions. What about people who didn't hear about Jesus? What about other religions? I'm going to answer that next week. So come back. <laughs> After this sermon on hell. We'll talk about Jesus. It'll be better. But the, the, the bottom line here is God wants everyone in heaven. You know, the Bible doesn't say a lot about hell. But it says a whole lot about a God of love. It places the emphasis on a God of love who loves us so much that he, his desire is to rescue all of us from hell. It's all about where you put the emphasis. Sort of like a true story of an English teacher who put the words on a blackboard, woman without her man is a savage. And, she, and he asked the class to punctuate it. The men punctuated it like this, woman, comma, without her man, comma, is a savage. All the women punctuated it this way, woman, colon, without her, man is a savage. It's all about where you place the emphasis, right? <laughs> and the Bible emphasizes over and over again, not hell. That's just the background noise. What the Bible emphasizes is a God of love that wants everyone to go to heaven, doesn't want anyone to go to hell. In fact, it is the exact opposite. There's a verse in the Bible where it says that when Jesus died, he descended into hell to preach to the spirits in prison. Now, theologians have argued over, for centuries over what that means, and I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it. But part of what it says is that God himself and the person of Jesus raids hell to rescue folks who don't want to be there. And not just hell after we die, folks. No, no. But hell here on earth. This is where the theological answers end and the everyday application begins. Because if hell is where God's love is not reigning, well, then there's a lot of hell on earth, isn't there? Wherever there's fear or wrecked relationships, loneliness, injustice, that's hell on earth. And Jesus came to rescue us from that. You see, God is not the sender of people to hell. We do that on our own. God is the rescuer. And that's what the Bible emphasizes. Whether it's hell beyond the grave or hell right here and now, God is the rescuer. This week I heard a man who's in the financial industry talking about how he was very stressed out over the economy, and who could blame him? So one night he started kind of flipping through the Bible, and he found some passages on peace and joy, and he said, you know what, the Lord did it again. 
Jesus was in the room with me. I felt, his, I felt he was right there, and I felt his peace and his joy. Jesus rescued him from the hell of fear and anxiety that a lot of us are in these days over the economy. Jesus, I know your stories. Jesus has rescued some of you from marriages on the verge of divorce, wounds from your past. Jesus has rescued some of you from loneliness by giving you a community of faith where you found friends. I know one man who says, I know that Jesus is real because I can love my mother-in-law. <laughs> Jesus rescued him from bitterness and anger and domestic strife. Jesus is the rescuer. I recently heard a man from Jacksonville named Terry Lane. He told a story about how he was a very successful cabinet maker. And so he built a second shop. But the problem was, as soon after he opened it, every morning there'd be broken windows, bullet holes in the walls, stolen equipment, even incinerated cars in the parking lot. Turned out there's a public housing development nearby where, where more crack cocaine was sold than any other place in Jacksonville. Neighborhood was filled with drug dealers and prostitutes, gangs, you name it. So he began to pray about it. And one night he had a thought, he said, that was so clear it was almost audible, and it said, if you'll love those who despise you, I'll take care of it. So he bought a bunch of basketballs, wrote Jesus loves you and Mr. Lane loves you on them, and threw it over the fence to the complex. Well, that Saturday, while he was working alone, he stepped outside for a break, and there were some kids who saw him, and they began to ran, run. But he said, wait, wait, you know, w w w would you like something to drink? A couple of them came back, and he opened up the soft drink machine for them, gave them some drinks. Well, he said, by Monday, I had almost 20 kids who came looking for, for me, or at least the man with the key to the drink machine. <laughs> by the end of the week, he had 35 kids who started to come to his office every afternoon after school instead of going home, because there was nothing home, at home for them anyway. So every day while he worked at his drafting table, there'd be all these kids around him on the floor coloring or doing other crafts that he had brought. And in his words, he said, that began a journey that would change my world and that of many kids whose addicted parents left them to fend for themselves, hungry, undisciplined, with no structure or motivation to go to school or church. He also started working with teens in gangs and, and drugs, many of whom were making their own lives a living hell through the bad choices that they were making. And he said, I felt compelled to do everything that I could do. And the years flew by, and the kids I mentored became a part of my life, and I became a part of them, their life. In fact, they even began to call me Pastor Terry, even though I'm a cabinet maker. Well, he eventually sold his business and started an inner-city Christian school that now feeds and clothes and educates 145 kids a year. And he says, my wife and I have gone from enjoying a six-figure income to subsisting on $12,000 a year. But God has faithfully met every one of our needs. And the rewards are incomparable. Nothing can replace the joy of having a little kid crawl into my lap, give me a hug, and say, I love you, Pastor Terry. Or a young man who's been rescued from a life of drugs, look me in the eye, shake my hand with a firm grip, and say, thanks, PT. It is the best reward there is. Through Terry, God reached down into the pit of hell and is rescuing 145 kids a year. Kids who lived in a hell on earth of poverty and loneliness and addiction. Jesus rescued them. But he also rescued Terry, didn't he? Rescued Terry to be more than just a cabinet maker, but to help him become, have this great adventure. To become part of God's rescue mission to this planet. And that's given him more meaning, more purpose, more joy than he ever could have imagined. How else do you explain going from a six-figure income to $12,000 a year and being happy about it? Our God reaches into the pit of hell and pulls us out if we'll just ask him to. Whether that's hell after death 
or hell here on earth. I remember when I was in high school meeting my girlfriend's mother for the first time, and one of the first things she asked me was, what church do you go to? And I said, well, I don't go to church. And she kind of frowned, and I said, well, is that a problem? And she said, no, not for me. I'm not the one going to hell. <laughs> wow. Nice to meet you, Mrs. Smith. <laughs> that relationship didn't last long, needless to say. She put the emphasis on the wrong place, didn't she? Jesus is not out to send us to hell. He is out to rescue us from it. That's why he came. That's the point. In Dante's Inferno, the bottom of hell is pictured as a big lake of ice. And Satan is in it, and he's flapping his wings to get out. But his heart is so cold that when he flaps, there's this freezing wind that comes from him that freezes the lake even more solid. So he flaps all the more, but the more he flaps, the more solid the lake freezes. The result is he traps himself in hell through his own behavior. So what behaviors are you doing that is making a hell on earth for you right here, right now? A reoccurring sin, anger and bitterness that has eaten you up inside, running away from God in some way, playing power games with people that just leave wrecked relationships, giving into fear, worry, anxiety. Stop flapping. You're just making it worse. And instead, will you pray, Jesus, rescue me. Show me what to do. Give me the steps to get out of this hell on earth, just like you did for Pastor Terry. Rescue me. This week I was reading Psalm 18 and the words just leapt out at me. And I've kind of turned it into a prayer all week. And it says, I love you, Lord. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. And in my distress I called to the Lord. You reached down from on high and took hold of me. You drew me out of deep waters. You rescued me from my powerful enemy. You brought me out into a spacious place. You rescued me because you delight in me. The Father is not out to send you to hell. He's out to rescue you from it, whether after death or in this life. Why? Because he delights in you. So much so that unlike every other God and every other religion in the person of Jesus, he took the pain of hell on himself. He personally invaded hell to get you out of it. And now Jesus reaches into the hell of your fears about your job or the finances. Jesus reaches down into the hell of addictions and, and chains that you try to give up, but you keep coming back to him again. Jesus reaches down into the hell of a broken marriage or loneliness or hurts and wounds or shame from the past. Jesus reaches into the hell of your boredom to give you a big, brave, bold adventure by making you part of his rescue mission to this planet. Jesus will brave the fires of whatever hell you are in, go down to whatever depths he has to go down to, fight any fight, overcome any obstacle, tear down any wall of shame, resentment, fear, anger. He will not stop. He will not pause. He will not yield. He will do anything, including stretching his arms out wide on a brutal cross to die, to come to rescue you when you call. So won't you call on him? Won't you say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. Will you please rescue me? And when you do, he will reach down into the pit of hell and grab Satan by the throat and say, back off, red legs. He is my son. She is my daughter. You can't have him. You can't have her. So hands off, devil, because at the cross, I broke the power of your two best weapons, sin and death, and you know it. So take your lion sheet and filthy hands off of him, Satan. They belong to me, and you belong in the lake of fire. I have come to the rescue today, so you're going down.
Jesus. Jesus is the rescuer. And he longs to rescue you from whatever hell you're in because he delights in you. And that sure looks like a God of love to me.